What song is that? Uh, where the streets have their name. Ah. I'm surprised he didn't recognize it. You know who I think should play the next Bond? Who? Who I think would be ideal, at least for me. Is this a, is this a joke or a... No, it's not. Uh, my word. My word should play the next, the next Bond. What? My word. What does that mean? Because my word is my Bond. <laughs> oh my god, I hate you. I hate you so much. Are we 45 minutes in? <laughs> are we really? Yeah, I guess so. I blame, I blame you, actually. It took 45 minutes to, to tell a story about buying some beer so I could watch sliders. <laughs> Which you didn't even do. I'll still do that. Like, I still have that on my bucket list. You still have bucket, your bucket list? Shortly before I die. Imagine if the last image you saw before you expired was fucking sliders. It was Jerry O'Connell standing before a wormhole. Or, or his brother. Or, or the guy who replaced both of them. Which is my favorite recasting. Why? So it originally started off with just Jerry O'Connell and uh, three other unrelated people. One of whom was uh, Jonathan Rhys-Davies. Ah, uh, acclaimed racist, Jonathan Rhys-Davies. Let's not punish the cast and crew and other actors on Sliders by boycotting <laughs> the great show Sliders. <laughs> boycotting the show that no one watches and talks about ever because it too cares. Because it's a pile of shit. But anyway, initially it's just Jerry O'Connell and three other people who are not related to him. Then in like season two or three, he's joined by Jerry O'Connell's actual brother in real life to play his fictional brother on the show. And obviously as it goes along, core cast members are dropping off and not renewing their contracts. But Jerry and his brother are still there. But then they decided to leave before the last series. Oh, I always thought it was his brother replacing him. No, no, no. Him and his brother were, were in it together. That's so much more interesting. And then they both left for the last series. There was no O'Connells. And the way they explain that in the universe of the show is that they get conjoined in some wormhole accident <laughs> and replaced by a new actor who's like vaguely looks like he could be related to them <laughs> he's, he's, he's playing the same character has been joined together that's fucking crazy and the other part that i enjoyed about sliders is that one of the characters left pretty early on like maybe even after the first series and there's this like this thread of plot that extends until the series finishes possibly in which they're searching for her again like she got lost along the way of when they were jumping between these realities but obviously the actress had just left so it was like just this stupid plot line that was never going to go anywhere you can i tell you something You'd like to hear more about the TV show Slice? <laughs> <laughs> of all the fucking useless shit that you talk about on this stupid fucking podcast, this is maybe the thing I'm caring least about. Like, honestly, who cares? I'm never going to watch Sliders. It's a show that I don't give a shit about. Like, that no one talks about. It has no cultural footprint whatsoever. It does have a cultural footprint. <laughs> fucking bullshit. On my brain. <laughs> fucking bullshit. <laughs> So should we talk about the movies or do we introduce the podcast or... Hey guys, welcome to the wormhole <laughs> of, of Sliders, <laughs> Sliders fan cast. What? Are you, are you like cutting out bits of paper? Yeah, I am because I'm so fucking bored with your Sliders bullshit. Jesus Christ. All right, come on, go ahead. No one, I've never heard anyone talk about Sliders. <laughs> Yeah, there's a reason for that. That was just a sad realization I just had. 
Oh, so you're, you're telling me that what I just said was that it has no cultural footprint is actually completely correct? <laughs> no, like, I'm sure, I'm sure there's been some retrospectives, like... No one cares! Just get off the podcast! Oh my god! Hey, welcome to Project A+. Plus. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna do it. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Project A+. Plus. I'm Hunter. What's your name? Q. Okay, perfect. Uh, this is a show where we talk about movies, and boy, do we have a special, special podcast for you today. Uh, do you want to introduce the films we're going to talk about today, Hugh? I, I do. I do want to. Okay, please, please take the lead in. But something is holding me back. What is holding me back? Is it sliders? <laughs> <laughs> you slid into another universe and you can't do the podcast anymore. It's another universe where our podcast is good. <laughs> You mean the one we're in right now? Imagine like if there was another... Well, I guess we can... <laughs> oh my god. Imagine like if there was another universe. I'm going to literally kill you. possibilities of universes in which like we're hugely famous podcast celebrities. This is going to be one of those like five hour podcasts, right? <laughs> Just remember that when you're editing this. This is all your fault. I know, it is my fault. How, how long have we gone now? Almost an hour. Hour and, hour and one minute. All right, so we've got all the garbage out of the way, so I just know if I start from an hour, it'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, now it's going to be perfect and straight. Yeah, we're going to finish it in 20 minutes. <laughs> so this week on the show, we'll be looking at The Predator, which is the latest film in the Predator franchise. Um, and this time it's directed by Shane Black, who previously appeared as a cast member. In the first Predator. In the first Predator. And written by Black and Fred Decker. Who collaborated on some other movies in the 90s. And Fred Decker is also famous for directing uh, the third Robocop movie. In addition to that, we will be continuing our series on the films of Nagisa Oshima and looking at Death by Hanging and Diary of a Shinjuku Thief. Two films that we will provide greater context to when we get around to speaking about them. The predator is coming for you, bioweapons gunning for you, or is he? Before we dive into the movie, The Predator, we should talk a little bit about the Predator franchise in general and our experiences with it. So what do you think of The Predator? Or no, I'm sorry, not the movie The Predator. What do you think of Predators in general? <laughs> like the one that was cast in this movie. Um, so we should call this episode To Cast a Predator. <laughs> Jesus. It's a good name. I should remember that. <laughs> Hugh, when you're, when you're uploading this, don't forget this. Great joke. <laughs> Come on. That's a good title. Hey, did you enjoy my... Come on. T- wait, 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 wait. This is, a, this is an important point. Oh, my God. I'm going to kill you. Did you enjoy my title for the Ant-Man episode? I don't even remember what it was. I was the old man of the wasp. But I spelt wasp capital letters, so very uh, funny. And you know what? So I was like, I was like, you know, uh, what's her name? Oh, uh... Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann. I was like, she looks waspish, so this joke is perfect. And then I was like, maybe I should double check. So I went to her Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. and there's a, literally a line in there in which she says, I had a waspish upbringing. So I was like, that's perfect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's a solid, solid joke. So you wanted to talk about the the franchise of the, the Predator films and, and our respective experiences. Yeah. Which we don't have to go into that much detail. Because I haven't had that much experience with it. I've only seen the first one. The Predator. Or Predator, whatever it is. Predator. Um, I I believe I've seen the first film. And possibly the second one. But I, I'm really hazy about them. 
So I think I would have caught them once as a kid. So. So basically, we're the ideal audience for this movie. I have no nostalgia for it. I like Carl Weathers a lot. I wish he was in more movies. So movie sort of it opens with a predator escaping from other predators, crash landing on Earth, um, and Quinn McKenna, who's played by Boyd Holbrook, is like an elite USA sniper guy who's sniping some people in Mexico because I guess that's what American snipers are allowed to do is just murder people indiscriminately in foreign countries and he uh, he's lined up a sniper shot he's about to take it and then the alien crash lands above him he's like what the hell is that he shoots a guy and then we don't ever see what happens to the hostages or anyone else <laughs> really just that. Um, he has like a team that's with him played by a bunch of nobodies um, and they go investigate the crash site and what they all get predated besides Boyd Holbrook baby Boyd yeah who successfully dispatches the Predator. No, I guess he doesn't dispatch him. He just knocks him out. They have a tussle. Yeah, they fight. He wins, but essentially. He steals some of his technology. He gets the mask and the little invisibility thing that the Predator uses to murder people because he's in, like, the middle of the jungle. He flees to, like, an actual town, sends this package to himself, essentially, to have evidence that an alien invaded Earth, I guess, uh, and then gets arrested. Concurrently to this... So there's sort of three plot lines that set up this movie. Uh, the U.S. military recovers the Predator, who's still alive, and recruits Olivia Munn, who plays a scientist, a biologist, and she's going to study the Predator. And also, <laughs> Hallbrook's original plan was to send the mail to a, a P.O. box, but because it's past due, the mail gets sent to the house of his family, um, which includes his wife. <laughs> And his autistic son. His sort of estranged family, somewhat. Yes. And I'm not just bringing up his autism as like a, oh, this is like his character because it actually becomes a weird, kind of bizarre, essential through line of the film. Yes, it does. <laughs> and so the Predator essentially escapes captivity, is going to go stop them, and Boyd Holbrook, who has essentially been Section 8, uh, is put on a van full of variously handicapped mentally handicapped other soldiers uh, escapes with this team and decides to stop the predator from murdering his family and stuff you sort of gave the impression that the van is full of mentally handicapped people which is not the case <laughs> no, that's not they've true. just been arrested yeah, for right. some transgression against the army but they all have like psychological problems uh, eventually it comes to transpire that the initial predator is in fact a rebel from the main predator group who has come to Earth in order to bargain with man. He has been injected with human DNA cells. Uh, and it never really shows why he decided to betray his fellow predators. Um, but maybe midway through the film, the predator, this this starting predator, uh, gets fucking strung up by uh, another bigger, more genetically advanced predator. And because he had some technology that he wanted to give to man... Oh, because, oh, that's right, because the Predators are planning to invade Earth because of global warming, right? Was that, am I making that up? Yeah, they just make a, make a implication that the Predators realize that humanity is headed for destruction. Yeah, <laughs> which they, they sort of <laughs> offer a timeline and it's like, that seems a little fast. I don't know about if I agree with that. Uh, it's not like two generations is that long in human terms. But yeah, so Predators possibly planning on colonizing Earth. This Rebel Predator is like, I'm going to get some technology to man. Um, but he gets killed, and the other Predator 
trying to retrieve the technology, and then uh, Boyd Holbrook and the U.S. Army, who are at odds and fight each other, are trying to prevent him from retrieving this technology. But the thing that, that I find curious, without getting into my feelings about the film per se, is that this whole reveal that the Predator is actually trying to help mankind or trying to help humanity should have led to like a, a, an element of the film in which they actively work with the Predator against the other Predators or something like this. Yeah, I agree. That would have been a better, a better film. Whereas essentially he's an antagonist for most of the time he's in the film. Yeah. In fact, all the time he's in the film because he's trying to get back his, his technology. So he's essentially just operating as a normal antagonist. And then he gets dispatched by the new Predator, who just takes over from being the antagonist. And then only at the end you realise, oh, the first one was good, okay? So, yeah. All right. But from a, like, from a screenplay perspective, you think, well, the interesting part would be, oh, well, if, if it was actually good, maybe they, they could team up at some point in the film and, you know, whatever. But no, that, that's not explored. So <laughs> anyway, what did you think of the film The Predator? <laughs> Or should I, do you want me to answer first? Because you did the introduction. I want you to answer first. All right. I, I thought this was garbage, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found this very hard going. Uh, so I wasn't a particularly looking forward to the screening. As I said, um, I don't have any nostalgia for the franchise, but even still, I didn't think it would be quite this bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess we'll pinpoint the ways in which we think it's bad. Well, I mean, you don't you don't know what I think about it. I mean, the only things I enjoyed about this were on the level of mocking certain choices that the filmmakers have made and the screenwriters have made. Nothing that the film actually produced in good faith did I enjoy. Gotcha. How did you go? Uh, I think I actually liked it a little bit more than you, but while saying, I thought it was still pretty terrible. Um, I liked that it was gory. <laughs> but all the characters were uninteresting and it wasn't particularly funny. There were some moments that I liked, though. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not great. I, I, it was definitely a movie where I was like watching this. I was like, I could walk out of this movie and my life would not change whatsoever. I, I had the feeling of wanting to walk out given the title of this episode. We shouldn't glance over the fact, um, the controversy surrounding the production of this film. So Shane Black hired his friend, Steve Wilder. He, he also cast in Iron Man 3 and The Nice Guys, his previous two films. Yeah. So he's used him before and it came to light via... Olivia Munn informing the studio that he's actually a registered sex offender and that he was trying to lure a 14-year-old girl, as it says, into some sort of sexual relationship. So he was grooming a 14-year-old girl online. And when this came out, uh, obviously the studio made them cut that the scene that he features in. And then reportedly there were some issues with the other cast members maybe not necessarily supporting Olivia Munn, and she reported that she hadn't even heard from Shane Black since she came out with it. Yeah, it's a little pretty unsavory. Yeah, I don't think the film needed any additional souring to be worse than it already is. But I mean, Shane Black apologized and stuff, but only after a lot of criticism. I, I don't really buy that he was completely ignorant of the nature of the crimes. Like, that seems <laughs> a little bit... Yeah, um... I, don't, I don't either. So that that was sort of in my mind as well when I was sitting through this. So it was the, the fact that there was this sort of murky moral association that I was supporting this production, and it's also terrible. So I did have a, a strong desire to leave the cinema at many points during this film. But I stuck it out for our dedicated listeners. <laughs> Wow, you're, you're such a fucking hero. So neither of us loved the film. No, it's it's not very good. And there are some 
issues I have with the film morally in the text of the film as well. Like, it's uh, portrayal of mental illness is highly concerning. Yeah, so this is one one thing I wanted to touch on as well. So, as you already alluded to, uh, what's his name? Boyd. Boyd Holbrook. Quinn McKenna. Quinn McKenna. His son, who, uh, through the postal mishap, gets into contact with this predator technology. Yes, his son, who's played by... Uh, Jacob Tremblay, who uh, both of us best know for playing um, the other son in Book of Henry, the non-Henry son. So he's, as they say in the film, on the autistic spectrum. Yes. And this becomes a crucial part of the plot because there's a point at which the new predator that has uh, killed the previous predator wants to engage in a hunt of the collected humans who he was chasing. Uh, and that's the point at which the Sterling K. Brown antagonist team has to team up with our heroes. And the Predator gives them like a head start and says that he's after the leader of the humans. And he says McKenna and he'll give them a head start and then he'll hunt them down. Yeah. And then obviously do something with McKenna. And uh, Quinn McKenna thinks it's him because he's such a masculine heroic type. And then it transpires that he was actually after his son. And this ties into an earlier line of dialogue uttered by Olivia Munn, which is word for word. (laughs) When they're talking about the difficulties of raising an autistic child, she says, many experts say that being on the spectrum is the next stage in human evolution, (laughs) which is certainly something I've heard many experts say. I don't know about you, but that's... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whenever I listen to experts... It doesn't even matter the field. It's just experts in general talking about that fact. Yeah, because definitely the next stage of evolution is a, a mental condition which impairs your social abilities. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, not to say that, um, you know, people with autism can't do wonderful things and lead, like, totally normal lives, of course. No, well, it is a, and it is a spectrum. So there's... Yes. Either of us could be on the spectrum. And the, I mean, it, it, yeah, of course. But um, <laughs> shut up. Well, my mom's literally obsessed with saying I'm on the spectrum. So. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But you've not been diagnosed anything, so... No, I'm self-diagnosed like David Byrne. Mum diagnosed. The film's heart is kind of in the right place, right? Where it's trying to show that, like, oh, you know, like, autistic kids can be just as capable as any, right? But by making them, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, so extraordinary, it seems uh, almost to destroy whatever point it's trying to make by being like well actually autistic people are superheroes so they're all like super geniuses and it's like what well i think that's common to the depiction of autism in film it's usually associated very often with like someone who has amazing um deductive powers or something who works for the police force but has terrible like yeah emotional powers or has social issues or yeah it's just propagating the stereotype that yeah it needs it needs um normalizing depiction where it's just part of the milieu of the characters and part of someone's life the only time the autistic characters are given agency as characters it's usually because they have this amazing ability right yeah so in a sense they're they only are their autism they're not defined in any other way yeah whereas when they're pushed to the sidelines the stories are usually focused around how other people deal with the fact that this kid has autism whether it's the parents or whatever it is so with either of those two things how difficult it is to raise someone or, or associate with someone with autism or how great they are at solving crimes or something like it's which this movie this movie does both yeah <laughs> um and jacob Tremblay is just playing like a stereotype essentially <laughs> 
but that's not that's not the only part where the film stumbles in terms of depicting uh, mental health issues. Right, because we have a character with Tourette's syndrome as well. Yes. Who is exclusively paid for laughs. Played by Thomas Jane, who I did not recognize. But yeah, he's just, it's just the, you know, if, if you've seen a, a, a movie or a television show that's depicted a character with Tourette's, you know what to expect here. It's just somebody who just keeps on twitching and just curses uncontrollably. It's, it's awful. And that's literally the joke. This guy's got Tourette's, so he, therefore he's going to say funny, sweary things. That is the joke. And the worst moment of the depiction of Tourette's syndrome is the scene in which Olivia Munn first meets this squadron of men and um, he blurts out something that has pussy in it. Like, so the about oral sex. And she looks at him and, and is like, what did you say? And the rest of the squad try and cover it up and say, oh no, he said something else. He said words that sound like this or whatever. Like they, they try, but not one of them thinks to say... He's got Tourette's syndrome, in which case Olivia Munn presumably would have gone as a scientist. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense that he only exclusively says, like, swear words. I think I think Olivia Munn's whole character feels like a, I guess we have to have a girl afterthought. Yeah, to the point where she's not even in the final scene at all. <laughs> and it's that thing again where the only way they can conceive of including a woman in the narrative is by giving her unrealistic action chops, despite the fact that she's a scientist and it's not explained why she has this these abilities. Yeah, she has to just perform... The same male actions, yeah. That legitimizes her in the film. Anyway, it was just like a shitty role, really. Yeah, There's nothing is. to it. It is. This is the second episode in a row where one of the primary cast members went to a school that I also went to. Wow. Because Keegan Michael Keane went to Penn State, where I got my undergraduate degree. What did you think of the movie, other besides all those terrible issues that we talked about? This is something I feel like I, I could have enjoyed this aspect of it when I think about it in uh, retrospect. But I definitely did not enjoy this aspect of it when I watched it, which is the the fact that the production values made it feel like it was a direct-to-video film. Like, it felt very cheap. I mean, it was not. It did not have a very high budget, in fairness. No, but it, it felt cheaper than you'd expect it to be based on where it came from. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like the shooting at night uh, really made me feel that way. <laughs> and the terrible CGI effects. Yeah, yeah. They're not great. Effects, effects or not, the type of film that is attempting to be, which is a throwback to what the original Predator was, and that, that genre of action film, the one thing you need to do is be able to stage the action scenes well, I think. Yeah, which this movie does not do. The action scenes are blandly handled. Which is weird because he... he uh, I feel like the action scenes in both Iron Man 3 and The Nice Guys, his last two films, are very competently directed. I think The Nice Guys is like a really funny and good film but this movie is not it is neither funny nor good no i can't say i can't say i'm much of a fan of shane black i mean one film i i really did not take to was uh, kiss kiss bang bang i liked it when i saw it but it's been so long that i don't really trust my own opinion on it the one thing to me that that uh i thought about kiss kiss bang bang when i watched it and it crops up here a little bit as well is um his dialogue sounds like a try-hard student comedy sort of thing. Someone who's just fresh from film school. I mean, that was his first. That was his first film to, that he directed and wrote in like years. So he may have just been a little rusty. But the, essentially, what you get with the dialogue here is either really terrible, clunky exposition or really bad jokes. Like it's, it just pivots between those two extremes. I will admit that I had one like genuine laugh. It's not even a line, but there's a sequence where the Predator uh, jumps on top of an army truck, right? And then murders all the army people who are in the back. 
Um, and then the guy in front, who is apparently not listening to his like comrades being murdered, opens up like the window that separates them, like the limousine esque window that separates the the two halves of the truck, and is like, hey, "Are you guys all right?" And the predator, <laughs> who's apparently well versed in human methods of communication, uh, sticks one of the uh, disarmed arms that he has pulled off one of the humans and has twisted it into a thumbs up gesture, <laughs> which is apparently enough to save this guy's curiosity, which I thought was pretty funny. That did get a laugh in my screening, but not, not from me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was funny. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and I, I laughed a lot during the final sequence, but I don't think that was intentional. Uh, specifically after, after Boyd Holbrook has cornered the predator and is about to execute him, <laughs> there's a scene, there's a line where he's like, uh, I, I wrote down it verbatim so I could just tell you. Yes, please. He's disarmed and dislegged the Predator, right? So the Predator is completely at his mercy. And he goes, what are you? And then the Predator just sort of like mumbles in his language. And he's like, shut up. And just start shooting him. I thought that was really funny. Because <laughs> it's like, what did you expect him to say? <laughs> <laughs> like, what response did you want? <laughs> I don't yeah. I also, I love this scene where uh, at the end of the movie, after the entire squad besides Boyd Holbrook has been, Boyd Holbrook has been killed via the film, via the various uh, predator machinations, uh, has collected various items that uh, that they had on their person, right? In a cabin that we hadn't seen before. <laughs> and I was like, how am I supposed to be remembered? How, how are these supposed to be reminiscent of the characters if you didn't show us the items in the first place? That was really stupid. I laughed at that too. Maybe they were in the Steve Wiley scene or whatever. <laughs> I did enjoy the I did enjoy the bit where uh what's his name? One of the guys gets his legs cut off by the force field. So that was pretty good. I like I, I mean it's just because I've been watching a lot of films and I've been like pretty bloodless recently. I did like how like gory this movie was. But the CGI blood was pretty bad. Yeah, when there's so much CGI it just uh, dilutes the gore effects. Um, to a large extent, so I don't really feel them viscerally. And no, just really but I, I just enjoyed me. some of them. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you another line, another thing that I genuinely laughed at too, um, which is when we're introduced to uh, the son character. Uh, there's like a, a push in like through the school, right? Or there's a there's an exterior shot of the school before it like cuts into the class or whatever. And the uh, sign outside of it, instead of saying teachers and students, it says welcome parents in SCDs, which I thought was funny. I like that it was, like, positive about the child murdering people. I thought that was pretty funny, too. Uh, I, I hated the get to the choppers line. That was maybe, like, the, the absolute nadir of the film, besides all the offensive stuff. How did they do it? I don't actually remember. I wasn't paying much attention. Uh, it was when they're fleeing from the military base, they pass, like, a yard through of... Um, or a, a, a lot that has a bunch of, like, motorcycles pop passing it, pa- parked in it, right? And uh, Travante Rhodes' character is like, get to the choppers! Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think that's all I got. It's pretty it's a pretty nothing movie. Definitely don't watch it unless you unless you have to. When I, when I, like, try and reconstruct the film from my notes and think about some of the things I observed from it, it seems like it should have been a more enjoyable experience than it was. Like, I could imagine thinking, like, okay, some, some dodgy CGI, some stupid stuff in the screenplay, and a kind of direct-to-video feel to the production. Maybe there's something to enjoy there, at least on some level, even if it's partly mocking enjoyment. But, yeah, I had absolutely no enjoyment of, of any aspect of this film. 
if you were already, uh, I mean, you probably should already avoid it anyway. <laughs> yeah, but if, you know, if you were inclined to go see it. This is how you can morally experience the film by listening to our podcast. <laughs> we're sacrificing ourselves for you. So you don't have to like contribute money to the, the people who made it happen. What about uh, the death of Stalin and Jeffrey Tambor? Eh? The implication here is it goes deeper because it's the director. And I don't know. It seems like kind of the same situation. To some degree. It's a spectrum. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I guess unlike the death of Stalin, I guess that was a production before all the uh, accusations against Jeffrey Tampor were made, so... So, like, Amanda Inichi was not like, he's my friend, the sexual predator. That's the, that's the children's book you're writing. <laughs> 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 Alright. Um, so that's the predator. Don't go see it. Is it right to kill a man just be... Um, so for the next segment of the podcast, we're going to continue our experiences with the films of Nagisa Oshima. Today, we're going to center our discussion around two of the films he made in the late 60s, uh, Diary of a Shinjuku Thief and Death by Hanging. All right. So Death by Hanging uh, from 1968 is a film that centers around an attempt to hang a Korean criminal in Japan who has been convicted of the rape and murder of two women. And what happens is they attempt to execute him by hanging, as the title suggests, but it doesn't work. He survives and is apparently mentally impaired by the process to the extent where he is not conscious of who he is and he isn't able to own up to his crimes. And there's a particular clause in the law that they refer to of the time in Japan that means that if the person is mentally impaired and not able to own up to their crimes, they can't be punished for them. So this prevents, this turn of events prevents them from just hanging him again. And what then transpires from there is the attempt um, on behalf of the authorities, the wardens, uh, etc., to re-establish this Korean guy's identity. Mm, and get him to... Own up to his crimes. Yes, so they can execute him. And the way they do this is by reenacting his crimes to see if that will jog his memory. By putting him through some sort of reenactment therapy or something like that. That's the essential setup, is, is them trying to get this guy to remember who he is and own up to his crimes so they can execute him again. What did you think? <laughs> oh, it was just a blast. What did you think? I didn't read anything going in. Um, so I only knew of it from its title. And I know that Oshima is like an experimental, politically active filmmaker. And I thought, okay, this is going to be some righteous indictment of the capital punishment system. Yeah, I, I assumed the same thing. It definitely played out completely differently than I was expecting, um, especially because the opening section did conform to my expectations because it's like this sober documentary-like segment in which um, a narrator talks you through the facility where um, a criminal is executed and the whole process around that, which is a great scene. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Actually, the narrator in the beginning is actually Oshima himself. But then, as might be clear from the plot I just explained, it gets a lot stranger and more of a dark comedy. Similar to Night and Fog in Japan, 
this really feels like a cinematic extension of experimental theater. Yeah, and it was in fact produced by the Art Theater Guild who came out of theater. And the structure of the film and the way it plays out is kind of as this weird, bizarre, morbid, Brechtian farce. Yes. That becomes less coherent as it goes along and more disorienting and dreamlike. Uh, but once again, once again, as with Night and Fog in Japan, the way he deals with this very theatrical setup um, on a cinematic level is really interesting and really engaging. Like, it doesn't feel like it's just a play that's been filmed. And, bit, and I feel like there is a push between the sort of theatrical setup of the film where essentially it doesn't weave the location of the hanging in the execution chamber for the, maybe the first hour of the film. Uh, except for the documentary bit that opens it. Uh, but then there's this like sort of like wonderfully surreal uh, scene where they all leave like a chamber in the execution room and then they cut out to like this the part of like the Japanese countryside. It, it mixes both that sort of theatrical quality with like pure cinema effects as well, I think. And I think it, I think it uh, continues what we said about Oshima last time, which is that the thing that he brings to songs is that he uses whatever stylistic means he thinks will bring across what he wants to say. Um, and that the reason he doesn't have necessarily a coherent style is for that reason that he is willing to use pretty much anything in order to, you know, do what he wants to do. <laughs> and I think he's used the Brechtian farcical experimental theatre set up here as a way of revealing how... Um, well, just how ludicrous and contradictory and uh, almost Kafka-esque the justice system in Japan is. Like it's used as a means of ridiculing the parties involved in this institution. So it uses even broad comedy in, in some respects, although it's very dark about subject matter. A huge chunk of the film is dedicated to the wardens like reenacting rape scenes on one another, rapes and murders on one another, which is very bizarre. Yeah. It's weird that every Oshima movie we watch, besides A Town and Love of Hope, is featured rape to one degree or another. That was something I was going to bring up with Diary of Shinjuki Thief, which we'll get to, but I think there are uncomfortable elements in this in the way it, it deals with sexual assault, but I think it's more morally justified in the in this particular setup. Because it's not... It doesn't absolve the character of the crime, and it doesn't make like light of it either. The thing that was quite effective is that when they show like the wardens reenacting the sex crime it reveals their sort of underlying capacity to commit the same crimes themselves they get really into it and it, it draws like a moral equivalence between them and the the killer as well like well a lot of arguments that people who are against capital punishment use focus on like oh the fact that you might accidentally execute someone who's innocent right it's it suggests that capital punishment is okay as long as you get the correct people right it doesn't it doesn't completely abolish it while this film i think is like bold of the fact that it's like the the act itself is inherently immoral and it doesn't it doesn't matter whatever the degree of criminal criminality is committed someone can do those horrible things it's still immoral to execute them and i like that it had like the courage of its convictions not to make uh the character like a railroaded person yeah and i think the the reason why this is so effective in the style it, it chooses to operate in which is which is this farcical mode is that it really shows how ludicrous the the rationale has to be um, and how it's how impossible it is to reconcile the idea of punish murder with murder yeah and, and also i've got it's a film that does not shy away from like the 
horrible war crimes that Japan committed in World War Two. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that it actually is, it deals with Japan's occupation of Korea. Yeah, which is a pretty rare occurrence for Japanese films, unfortunately. Racist stereotypes against Koreans are included to indict the Japanese characters. Pretty much every every Japanese character is prejudiced and racist to some degree. Like even like the the Catholic priest is one of the people who is like most arguing for the uh, inmate not to be executed still like seems self-serving and bigoted to some degree so it's actually based on a real case in which a, a korean man uh, committed these crimes and then wrote a famous account that was a sensation at the time which is presumably what the the like written interludes i assume that's what the, the yeah actually some of the some of the lines are directly from it including the stuff with the the sister was uh, apparently taken from it yeah yeah, that's sort of imagined, sister. Uh, is there anything else like to, you'd like to say? I'm just curious if, if when I go back and listen to uh, our discussion of this film, um, if there are any complete sentences. <laughs> no, it's just front on. <laughs> and that's interrupting each other. But it is, it is sort of a tricky film to talk about in, in a way. Because it is so, like, political and, like, philosophical. And it's just so, it's crammed full of, like, dialogues and stuff. That it can be difficult to extract, extract the specific strands to some extent. I think it's it's definitely recommended. I would absolutely recommend people check it out. Yeah, for sure. I'm a thief, I'm a thief, and my chief object is theft. There won't be nothing left. I'm the best. Now, shall we move on to... Diary of a Shinjuku Thief, which is maybe a little harder to synopsize. Oh, good thing it's your turn. <laughs> is it? No, you could, you could do it. I feel a little sleepy. I had to wake up early this morning to do this fucking podcast. I went to bed at like 1 o'clock last night. I'm only running on like 6 hours of sleep. Come on, give me a break. Diary of a Shinjuku Thief is a film that Oshima released the following year, 1969. And it centers around two young people so there is a parallel to cruel story of youth yes and they they sort of have some weird type of relationship they meet uh in a bookstore when she catches him stealing some books and that's about the extent of the plot (laughs) (laughs) that's not true it's more of a premise yeah i mean this is how i describe the film oshima had access to a bookstore he met this experimental theatre troupe. He got drunk with his staple of actors. He did some verite footage with his actors around uh, real locations. And he shot some documentary footage of a protest and incident in which vandals are apprehended. And then he was like, yeah, that's a film. <laughs> Is that is that true, or are you just speculating this based on the? I'm speculating based on what I watched. I don't know. I don't think it's as uh, incoherent as you're suggesting, to be honest. So um, it's called Diary of a Shinjuku Thief, but really it should be called Diarrhea of a Tomono Filmmaker. I'm not gonna laugh. <laughs> I had to look up where. Um, Who's for? Good line. I found this like genuinely interminable. <laughs> I, I did find some of it to be it's a film that I like a lot better when I'm thinking about it now 
than when I was watching it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's uninteresting. Like, I think it has stuff in it, but it, I found the experience so torturous to endure. I, I, found, I found some sequences to be so invigorating and wonderful that it really elevated it to me. The boy and the girl are going to like a sex therapist, essentially, in order to work on their relationship. And for some reason, it just cuts to <laughs> this scene where Rokotomura, uh, Fumio Watanabe, and presumably <laughs> Oshima himself are just getting drunk and talking about their love lives. <laughs> There's something I really liked about that. Yeah, so it's clearly actual footage of them just talking. Like yeah. It's nothing to do with the film. <laughs> I really like that a lot. I don't know what to say. I just thought it was really, it was really good. But there's a scene, the probably my favorite part of the entire movie is there's a scene where the female character, whose name I don't remember, she selects all these texts by people like Jean Genet and other people who I can't remember. Uh, there's like a Stalin text and stuff like that. Um, and she's sort of taking all these books and putting them in the center of the room, right? And just like stacking them up. And um, when she opens a book, it voiceover of someone reading the book either in French or Japanese or other languages too presumably um sort of starts playing and it just starts um overlapping until it's just like this like cacophony of like thought essentially I thought that was by far the only like redeeming section of the film to me (laughs) wow I also I really like the end bit too like the bit of the theater I thought was like terrible (laughs) like almost unwatchable um but when it, when it cuts from them having sex to the sort of protest against the police, I thought that was just a really effective summation of like the, what the film was trying to say about like the um, linkages between art and sex and like political thought. I don't, I don't think it had anything coherent to say about anything. I don't know if I agree with you, but no, I feel like the, I feel like that the end sequence really pushed it in into saying something concrete to me. Like what what is it actually saying? Well, that the sort of sexual liberation plus like artistic freedom can is is like a potent recipe for um, revolution. Garbage films. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it was is getting at. No, I don't disagree that it's like trying to say things and making connections between that, but I don't think that is like profound or anything. No, I mean, but I thought I think that's I just. Like, I, yeah. I liked it. I don't know what to tell you. So like, there were moments like as this film sets out where I'm like. You know, I actually enjoy the fact that Oshima really doesn't give a fuck, right? That he will do whatever it takes to express himself in a particular way or get the message across, which you've already alluded to in terms of his stylistic changes film to film. Yeah. And this was like, yes, fuck it. I'm going to include like a whole section where it's just me and the other actors talking. I'm going to include that as part of the film. Like I like, I like that freedom and experimental nature of it. But then there's a certain point in the film where I was like, where is this film? This is not adding up to anything. This is just stringing along what it could cobble together for 90 minutes. I guess I just don't mind that quality that much. Many people have, have drawn the comparison to Goddard. This does feel sort of Goddard-ish. Um, and it has that same quality that I sometimes dislike about Goddard's film, in which it feels like... Just the collection of what he was thinking about at the time. He hasn't put enough effort into the final product. This this just felt too too clearly and transparently cobbled together for any of its provocations to register as anything but afterthoughts to me. And I think we should touch on the very questionable inclusion of rape and sexual assault. Yeah. And this did not feel justified in a way that that, that element of death by hanging was, was kind of intrinsic yeah. to it. It, it, was, it, was, it, it. In a way, he was following up a cruel story of youth. Hmm. But yeah, it's very sort of tossed off and has no meaningful impact on the, the lives of the characters at all. 
It's very strange. I don't. I really don't know why he decided to include it. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to fit even what he was trying to say, whether he successfully said it or not. It doesn't really seem to add anything. No, I completely agree. Not to like uh, uh, oversell my progressive. Jesus, uh, you're such a fucking credentials. Yeah. Liberal cock. I'm not saying this uh, in order to sound good or anything like that, but genuinely, I'm I am always uncomfortable with depictions of sexual assault on screen. Yeah, I am too. It's very different to depictions of like murder or something in which the actors aren't going through anything that has any connection with the experience of being murdered, really. Whereas when you're setting up this um, sexual assault scene, I think even just on the people involved in the scene, it's it's problematic, I think. Yeah. I don't know. No, I mean, it can be. Obviously, they've consented, but you don't really know the environment of all these films. I don't know. And the female perspective of this film, the, the same sort of problems I have with some of the French New Wave stuff, where all the, the philosophy pours out of the men and women are treated as like... The women are only like vessels to be awoken. Yeah, like this thing to be thought about and to represent something and never be agencies of any of that philosophy themselves. But clearly that's a wider cultural problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I enjoyed Jairus and Jiggy Thief a bit more than you did, uh, even if I find the sexual politics to be questionable at best. Which is why it's so exciting that the last three films of his that we're going to discuss are only about sex, right? Well, I'm hoping, like, based on what I've heard, that in the realm, the census is more of a... Progressive depiction. Somewhat more progressive, yeah. At least a woman gets to cut off a dick. <laughs> it's symbolically uh, Oshima castrating himself for all the terrible things he's <laughs> yeah exactly um, alright so do you have any uh, last words about either Diary of Shinjuku Thief or Death by Hanging Death by Hanging is good Diary of Shinjuku Thief is terrible I would say it's interesting uh, I would uh, Death by Hanging is obviously a superior film it's way more like polished and it does not feel cobbled together as you said but I actually, I appreciate sort of the shoddy nature of the construction of Diary of a Shinjuku Thief, so. Like, you know what would astonish me on the DVD release of this, on the Criterion release, if that if there are deleted scenes? Of Diary of a Shinjuku Thief? I mean, of course there are. <laughs> you just think you use all the footage that he shot? I think that's it. He, like, looked at the amount of reels. That's 90 minutes worth. Stop. Stop production. I'm a thief. So I guess uh, join us next week when we conclude our Ashima series with what three films um, we're gonna watch in the realm of the senses. Probably Ashima's best known film, uh, Empire of Passion, which is his follow-up to In the Realm of the Senses. Uh, apparently explores similar themes, but um, was uh, the film of his that won the Palm d'Or. So obviously very acclaimed. And finally, uh, probably my favorite film of his, uh, Merry Christmas is Lawrence, his uh, David Bowie film. Which is about the same level of quality as Just a Jiggle, I'm just going to warn you right now. So to say great. Okay, so, um... Queso, yum. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> it's probably my best joke ever. <laughs>
<laughs> so when I was editing that uh, most recent episode that I was doing, and it had this extreme discursion about my diet and <laughs> how to make coffee and which coffee I like uh, in the yeah. world and uh, the types of coffee. And my desire to get a pour-over coffee thing. Yeah. And then me talking you through the process of how to make a pour-over coffee, which you did ask for. I didn't just volunteer that. Like, you were like, how do you do it? But you probably didn't expect me to go into so much detail. Um, and then I tell a story about buying a $1 coffee from 7-Eleven and not liking it, which is a great story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's literally the story. And then I move on to the, the story of being mistaken for a woman by a homeless person. Oh, yeah, which you should have excised. You're a big fan. I, I, it was bad. Like, I can tell you objectively, the whole thing was, was bad. In the podcast that we do, yeah. But I think our discussion of the films was kind of bad as well. But anyway, you guys should definitely listen to it. Which one? Which one was the Titan one? and Inner Space. Oh, yeah. Well, that was in the... I mean, our, the material that we were given was like not super high quality, so... In some way, we had to be forgiven for being a little bored by the movies. It's actually not. It's not that bad. We've probably been worse. Not every episode that we do is perfect, and I won't hear otherwise. All right. So, um, shall we move on to our bonus features now? Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus. Okay, welcome to bonus features. Now we talk about what you've been watching. That's not the three movies we just discussed. Great summary. Thank you. Uh, you start. No, I'll start. I'll start. Uh, I watched a recent movie uh, by one of a director I'm pretty fond of, um, who's Hades in this sort of eighties, uh, and it really just blew me away. It's, it's I don't know, I'm so surprised that uh, a director whose sensibility is so fundamentally sort of trapped in his time. Um, can come and make a movie that just speaks to me in the present day, right, and release it, uh, you know, in 2018. It's just, like, a perfect summation of everything that I've been thinking and feeling, you know what I mean? And I'm really, like, hesitant, and I feel like you're kind of the same way to call things, like, masterpieces when you first watch them. Mm-hmm. You gotta process a bit. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty secure in saying that uh, not only do I think that this film is a masterpiece, but I think it'll go down as one of the defining films of um, not only, only 2018, but probably the, the decade as a whole. Um, which is the uh, 2018 Shane Black film, The Predator. <laughs> was that I was hoping it was going to be a joke. And then when it was a joke, I was disappointed. <laughs> Asshole. And also, also, we both did that joke like 20 times on the Titan episode. <laughs> did we really? Yes. About the Titan? Yes. Okay. Well, I did watch one masterpiece this week, um, which is Elaine Renee's film, Night and Fog, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about Night and Fog in Japan, so I won't go into too much detail, but it is a haunting and shattering uh, documentary about the Holocaust. Um, but it is just such a, I don't know, it's just such a singular film, and it's hard to watch. Yeah, it's one film. I hate you so much. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Night in Fog, um, definitely would recommend that people watch it, but just make sure you're in a mood to be, like, depressed. <laughs> That's all about it. Yeah, so when you're up for feeling depressed. <laughs> or when, okay, watch it when you're not already happy. If you're already feeling a little down, then just watch Night in Fog. Um, and then I watched for another film for class, which has following the title, uh, The Fog of War. 
uh, Errol Morris's documentary about uh, Robert McNamara, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and uh, Errol uh, Morris's impulse to sort of um, humanize monsters, <laughs> I think it's sometimes gotten the better of them. Uh, like apparently the movie about Steve Bannon that he made has not been well received for that reason. Um, but it works. It's pretty effective here. Um, the film uh, straddles the line between like empathize with empathizing with McNamara without and showing him to be a human without ever uh, um, shying away from the terrible things that he in part was responsible for, and that the American government and under partially his like uh, jurisdiction was also responsible for. Um, so it's definitely worth a watch. Um, I watched the Coen Brothers uh, 1994 comedy, The Hudsucker Proxy, which I I think is an amazing film. No, it's not, I don't think it's like that successful as a comedy. If that makes any sense. I can add some jokes I think that are really funny, uh, but I mostly enjoy it just as like this weird pastiche of like 40s uh, screwball comedies mixed with like this odd strain of like German expressionism. And it's all just sort of this bizarre mishmash that is so Coen y and just amazing. Uh, and it's it's just a, a type of comedy that doesn't get made today, which is just like big budget special effects comedies. Like, there's so many sets in this movie and so many like little, um, you know, detailed models that you just you just never see anymore in comedies, which just settle for digital cameras and uh, improvisation. Um, but I really enjoy that a lot. Um, I went to the theater and saw a movie, which is Satoshi Kon's 1997 Perfect Blue, which I think I may have talked about on this podcast before. Perfect Blue, yes, you have. Uh, so I won't go into too much detail, but suffice to say, it's it's just a amazing film. So the final non-podcast uh, one that I watched this week was the 1995 anime compilation film, or anthology film, rather, uh, Memories, which brings together three short films, um, all based on short stories by... Uh, Katashiro Otomo, who is most famous for writing and directing uh, Akira, uh, sort of a seminal anime film. Um, and this is a very interesting film. The segments are, um, you know, as with any sort of anthology film, some of them are better than others. Um, but the first one is probably the highlight, which is about this, like, junk spaceship who, or this, it's set in the future, and stars, or it's, it follows um, these sort of Again, it's like an unspecified junk collection type crew thing um, as they are follow a distress call and sort of get sucked into this web of this bizarre biome that's been created by the artificial intelligence uh, recreation of this dead opera singer, which I don't want to spoil too much of. Um, and then there's the second segment uh, is about a sort of a generic archetypical like salary man type character who uh, ingests an experimental pill by mistake, and then it, it unfolds this like weird, sick, dark joke where his body starts emitting this scent that kills whoever smells it, and it basically man- it manages to uh, kill thousands of people. Um, but it's played as like a weird joke. It's uh, it's somewhat successful, I'd say. And the last one's called Cannon Fodder, which is only those directed by Odomo himself, and his uh, it's sort of it, it's not really a film with this strong narrative through line. But it, it's this sort of overarching view of this bizarre society that has seemingly incorporated militarism into like its very fabric. Um, and everything in the society is exclusively 
related to militarism and specifically it's a sort of like what if the military industrial complex was a uh fantasy film essentially and mm. uh, that's about it so check it out if you'd like and hugh hamilton what have you been watching this week um okay so i watched a bunch of stuff you have to be so tired at this point it's three o'clock in the morning it's so late Okay, so I watched um, a whole series of films uh, directed by the great Czechoslovakian director, Vera Hitchelova, and that is my best attempt at pronouncing her name, uh, even though each of the films was introduced by a curator of the um, cinema, and uh, she pronounced it correctly, but it, it, I couldn't quite grasp how to pronounce it so that's that's all the best i can do it's not exactly as i was pronouncing it before which was phonetically like vera chitilova it's more like hitilova but it's also not like that at all <laughs> so please write in and correct me jesus fucking christ anyway so i watched a series of films by vera hitilova and i got to see some very interesting films in addition to daisies of course um, and these included uh, A Bag Full of Fleas, which is a short film that she made in 1962, which was uh, set in a girl's dormitory that's part of some socialist workers' factory. And it just centers around uh, one, of the, one of the girls who is becoming rebellious and uh, not performing her duties as she should and causing some issues amongst the... Uh, powers that be um, so it has this that strain of irreverence which i so enjoy in in her films and the uh, evocation of, of a system that is is constricting these characters and it, it's very much like a documentary in the way it's shot so it feels like it's incorporating elements of uh an, an actual dormitory uh, in addition to fictional elements and the film is shot as if it's from the perspective of this unseen other character mm. unseen until the very end um, and so it's really playful in the way it's done and it's beautifully shot in uh, crisp black and white and I thought it was like a amazing short film which I really really enjoyed I think it's um, as good as a short film as Daisy's is as a feature film in fact uh, so Daisy's again which I've already spoken about on a previous podcast I think the one thing about Daisy's which is interesting to maybe revisit is speaking of authorial intent and the artist is dead and that sort of stuff. It's interesting that, that her intent for the film was very different to what it's often celebrated for, certainly in the West. She wasn't trying to present characters who the audience should side with, oh. but to condemn them, in fact. Interesting. So it's kind of the opposite of, of what it's been celebrated for. But in the process of doing that, because of her sense of humour, and um, as I said, her irreverence streak, and also the fact that it does incorporate things that are against the patriarchy in society and it mocks these men who, who fall for their schemes and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's interesting the way it functions on that level as well. And um, in the editing, her husband was specifically trying to create like an anti-aesthetic that had no sort of merit in its own right and was supposed to be intentionally disorienting. And then he discovered through the process that it had created um, its own aesthetic. Initially, it might make you maybe appreciate the film less if you like it for its irreverence, maybe celebrating these characters. But maybe it makes me like the film more in the sense that it can actually um, sustain these different interpretations without collapsing. 
and I really enjoyed watching it again. I think it's still incredible. There was a long period of time in which after the Prague Spring in 1968... To the Soviet sort of clampdown. Yeah. Also, the name of my sexual move. <laughs> she had difficulty after the Soviet clampdown, as it were, named after your sex move, getting films off the ground. So it took until like 1977 uh, for her next film, which was The Apple Game. And uh, The Apple Game is less of the, the experimentations in Daisies and A Bag Full of Fleas. And it's kind of like a sex comedy in some respects. But it also has its own irreverent, subversive qualities. Um, and I found it, I found it quite enjoyable. Um, they also showed her first feature-length film, which is called Something Different which is another great film. And this combines sort of a documentary storyline focusing on a Czechoslovakian Olympic gymnast uh, as she goes through her training regime at the hands of her trainer and husband, who are two different people. And some of those scenes are clearly not purely documentary, even though it is a real, they are real people. Um, but the way, but it's, it's, beautifully constructed and so well shot that some of it has to be more staged than a normal documentary. And that is intercut with a unrelated or superficially unrelated storyline shot in a similar documentary style about a housewife sort of suffering something of an existential crisis within her, the confines of her marriage and um, looking after a young child. And uh, she has an affair with with a younger man and the interesting thing about the, f- the way the film works, the way these stories sort of dovetail, mm-hmm. thematically at least, is there is obviously a sense of you know, patriarchal institutions uh, bearing down on, on these two characters in two different contexts. One of them as a housewife and one of them as a professional gymnast, but with these male figures surrounding them and dictating their lives and them feeling some sort of... Um, Some sort of um, like disruption, or well, them them experiencing some sort of yeah, some sort of existential uh, crisis. Yeah, some sort of ongoing crisis or whatever. Whatever I just said doesn't matter. (laughs) This is the best part of the podcast. And in in questioning the yeah, questioning. Whatever. Yeah. I, what I, was trying to say. I get what you're saying. I had a, I had a different term to existential crisis that I wanted to use because I already said existential crisis. But anyway, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm talking I about. Do. Listeners know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You guys can write in with your own fucking answers. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Call your listeners cuts. Probably not the best strategy if you want to maintain a listener base, but you know, whatever. Anyway, so back to these feminist films. <laughs> <laughs> So they both, both the characters, well, one of them is an actual person, but both oh the stories, the, <laughs> shut up, both the women in these stories uh, rebel somewhat against these pressures. So the gymnast refuses to practice at certain points and is clearly disenfranchised with her stock in life. And um, the housewife rebels by seeking a younger lover but then their stories sort of circle back on themselves so after the professional gymnast has won the top prize in her field um, despite all the struggles she's gone with and the questioning of her physician 
she is then shown to be mentoring the next generation of gymnasts. So her story sort of circles around and she's still within that institution uh, to some degree. And in the other story of the housewife, she goes back with her husband who also was having an affair. So they sort of come to some sort of compromise and, and reassemble the family unit. Um, so it's kind of a cynical ending in a way. And I thought it was really effective and well done. Um, so that's definitely worth checking out. And there was also another short film called Ceiling of Hers, which I watched, which was foc- was a, more of a documentary focusing on the life of a model, very similar to something different and a bag full of fleas in the way it's it's portraying a woman going through this crisis based on her circumstance. But it's a, a little bit more slight than the other efforts. And uh, I, I thought Bag Full of Fleas was a, a better short film. Um, and lastly, although there's two more films that are on next week, but lastly that I've seen so far is a, a great film called Panel Story or Prefab Story. It's, got, it's a few different names or Birth of a Community which was a film that uh, was released in 1981 and it settles around this uh, community, around this housing estate that's in the process of being constructed. Um, And it's just a bunch of, it's like a, it's another, it's another film by Vera (laughs) Hitler. Is there anything else you watch or is it just Vera Hitler films? (sighs) <laughs> yeah so i watched ecstasy and this was part of the same festival that was showing the video hitler films because this is a czechoslovakian film from 1933 directed by gustav machati and it's uh notable for its depiction of female sexuality and it's ex- explicit for the time depiction of nudity in fact so the <laughs> the ending tonally is like a, an abrupt sort of shift that seems to dip into propaganda but otherwise it's really interesting um, your final film was shop around the corner that's it yes the shop around the corner film i've wanting, been wanting to watch for years an ernst lubitsch classic the story after which you've got mail was modeled it's set in hungary mm-hmm. budapest that's where you're from, right? Yes. You finished? I'm just laughing at you, Jake. <laughs> you, you are not. I've got a laugh button, so it doesn't, like, you know, distort the audio waveforms. Anyway, so the, the plot of the film is um, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, shucks, oh, gee, oh. Oh, <laughs> I, was, I was really hoping that was it. I was really hoping you would say, "Oh, shocks, oh, gee," and then sigh and just go back to it without me reacting at all. I guess I'm a little disappointed. Should I do the whole plot of the film as if I'm Jimmy Stewart's character? No, just fucking go for it. Ah! Hey, I'm I'm Jimmy Stewart, and I I work in this little shop, and I work for a big boss and. And it's like a department store, but uh, we sell all sorts of goods, and I'm one of the chief clerks of the store, and oh, gee, oh, gee, and I've met a lovely young lady, and we correspond to each other, but we've never met. Oh, gee, shucks, we, yes. And she's very interested in 
oh gee and she's very interested in gee shucks she's very interested in intellectual stuff and we, we <laughs> she's we, very interested in gee shucks gee i think i'll go down to australia and lose my accent <laughs> okay i'm back in budapest having developed an australian accent and uh anyway so I, i'm really into this this girl who i'm corresponding with like she put an ad in the paper and she said you know i want a really smart dude to to discuss intellectual concepts with <laughs> that's why jimmy stewart <laughs> jimmy stewart the crow <laughs> um, i'm sexually obsessed with kim novak why not do your hair like that madeline or judy i'm sorry i fucked up that reference it can't matter to you judy it can't matter Fuck me. please continue judy 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 that's my cary grant this is terrible actually that's my impression of larry david's impression of cary grant okay great so are you finished or <laughs> No, he's still going. So we talk to each other and... Oh, no, I'm Australian. Sorry. And then, uh, hey, there's this this woman has come into the shop and she really wants a job because she's desperate. But I'm like, wow, we're not going to hire. I know what the boss is going to say. And then, uh, oh, now she has been hired for some reason. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, but I'm skipping over it because... Just come on, man. In the interest of time, just... (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing that you care about. It's not wasting time. Are you finished yet? No. Uh, okay, so I walk. <laughs> I'm in the, so I'm in the shop, right? And and <laughs> this is this is impossible to follow. <laughs> and and this girl who looks like Margaret, sorry, this woman, I should say, like I'm I'm a, I mean, I guess I'm a product of my time. I'm allowed to say girl. You can say girl now. It's and I'm fine. dead. Oh my word! <laughs> but I was alive when I made this film. <laughs> so Margaret Sullivan comes in. She gets a job at the shop, um, but we kind of clash, right? And unbeknownst to one another, we are actually the people corresponding by letter. What? So in person, in person, we're like at loggerheads, but, you know, by letter, we, we love each other. Yeah, I fucking got it. It's the part of You Got Mail. But You Got Mail is different because they don't work in the same shop. So, hey, 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 and then... Uh, and then they fall in love. It's great. Okay. Is that it? Is that the end of the movie? Well, yeah, they do at the end, but it's the way they get there is. <laughs> so, Hugh, you've, you've effectively established uh, the shop around the corner. Did you like it? Yeah, I loved it. It's great. Okay, perfect. Perfect. <laughs>